So basically, what I was hoping to do was give you a little bit of background on um, where Indeca is today, but then talk about how we got here, sort of intertwining what we were doing at any point in time with the context that was around us, because the past six years have been, you know, the context has been very highly volatile, and, um, you know, and how we've had to maneuver in that is, I think, uh, a lot of lessons to be learned for aspiring entrepreneurs. So, um, you know, our mission today, right, you know, is to help people find, analyze, and understand information in ways never before possible. That's a fairly audacious statement. Um, and, you know, the good news is that when people actually get to use our software, they often um, come and back up that assertion. I actually spoke to a large group in the intelligence community last week, so CIA, DIA, NSA, people like that. And I made this assertion, and afterwards, one of our customers came up. You know, he said, all that stuff you said, it's all true. He said, I wanted you to know that, that I love this. This really has made my job so much different, right? And that's, you know, that's the best part of the job, right, is when you get to hear stuff like that. Um, I wish that was every day, um, but uh, it happens often enough. keeps me going. So, um, the, um, you know, and this, you know, I'm just taking a few slides here. This is from our standard materials. I presented yesterday in California at an investor conference, and this is how we characterize the company. You know, where this, you know, the fastest growing information access software company. Now, you know, at our size, it's, it's easier to be the fastest growing. When we get bigger, it becomes harder. Um, there's a lot of uh, core intellectual property that you know, has been assembled um, over the course of uh, the company. In fact, we started out as a research project, which is a little atypical. Usually, um, venture backed companies are spin outs of universities that have been research projects. Um, and, you know, we've been getting a lot of recognition, you know, in the, in the broader commercial community. Um, IBM's partner of the year for their information management business, which we're pretty proud of, especially given they have products that compete with us, but they also need us um, because they can't do what we do. Um, PC Forum, I don't know how many of you here know Esther Dyson, but she has a very big, uh, uh, Freeman Dyson, her father, um, over at the Institute uh, for Advanced Study. Um, but is a fairly uh, influential in the technology community, holds a big conference. We were best of show there. AMR Research, these are an industry analyst firm. These are firms that help large corporations make decisions about technology acquisition. They gave us their business, business innovation of the year for 2006. Gartner, another one of those firms, they named us to their, what they call the magic quadrant, and I'll explain that as we go through some of these slides. But bottom line is that means big companies looking to make a decision around information access software now have us as one of the first people that they call, whereas before we got that, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even look at us. So, and the customers, you know, we we're close to crossing the 300 customer mark. Um, there was only one as of uh, October 2001. And there you can see it's a lot of recognizable names, um, you know, both here in the U.S. Um, uh, and now emerging in Europe and, and even Asia. The, uh, and, you know, a nice, healthy business. You know, we, we closed Q5, uh, Q405 with a $13 million quarter. Again, you know, there was nothing in late 01. The, um, and I actually brought an example, which uh, hopefully uh, is, you know, I thought was appropriate for a bunch of folks here at the university. This is a, the Harvard University Library Interface, where there was a, uh, a query was typed in and for Civil War. And they got a list of 25,000 things. What do you do with 25,000 things? 
right? If you're a human, if you're a computer, great, you can process that. But 25,000 things in a list doesn't do you very, very, very much good. And that was the observation that we made when we started the company, is that that is not how people interact with information. People do not process lists and understand them. What people do is they get information in context, right? So this is, uh, oh, you can skip that. This is uh, North Carolina State, where it's the same, you know, basic kind of data, book data. But now when someone executes a query, all that stuff on top is basically navigation that allows them to understand the context of that information set. Okay, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining, you know, talking about the technology and the applications. I'm happy to do that afterwards. I'm trying to stick to the mission of talking about the story of the company. But the basic idea, you know, was if you, you know, you type in a list, you know, and it's, it, you know that doesn't help you. But if instead you get a store of information, just like when you go to a retail establishment, right? Think of the difference between going to the flea market and going to the mall. One place information is organized so you can understand it and consume it. In the other place it's a big mess and you don't really know what's there. Our mission is to organize information so humans can interact with it more effectively. And in fact, this was a comment that came in yesterday, another one of those great things that you get as um, you know, when you're doing pioneering stuff. This is a student at North Carolina State. This went live two weeks ago. And this was his message back to the library staff. Right? You know, and here's someone now suddenly thinking going to the university online catalog is fun. Right? Who would have thought? So. Um, this is probably more typical stuff that I use in our standard presentations. This is a, a research site. It has what I call a command line interface. Traditional search, you can do everything you can do with search you know, at Google, basically at a, at a DOS prompt. Right? Think about how far we've advanced in terms of the rest of the interface, but we don't take advantage of that. Okay? So there's something, something wrong there. And this is here it is at Forrester Research, where that information's in context. Same content. You know, but now by, you know, um, you know, the benefit of our software is that they can provide context around that information that allows users to discover the valuable information that they've got. And again, I'm not going to uh, bore you with details, but in fact, I'm going to skip these because it's kind of hard probably to even see that uh, back there. But the idea is each time I click on something, I get a new context painted. It helps me discover what information is there. Right, a bunch of menus come up that really summarize the, the underlying data. Um, you know, and if you go to a site like Home Depot, here's a search for seeds. And instead of getting a list, I learn about different categories. I get helpful content about how to plant, you know, grass seeds, you know, the manufacturers, other helpful tools. You know, it might seem very simple, but doing this very flexibly and very well allows someone like Home Depot to increase sales 54%. That's just by deploying the software. Okay. You know, because um, and you know a lot of that comes back to the original design goal was uh, the other founder of the company. We wanted his mom to be able to be able to find stuff online, and she had trouble with the back button. So that was always the uh, the design goal. How do you make it really easy for someone that's not technical to be able to discover information online? Um, and it extends to you know more sophisticated enterprise stuff. In this case, it's business intelligence. Which, if you think about if um, you know, a word processor is to the search market as a spreadsheet is to the business intelligence market. You're dealing with numeric data. You're trying to understand trends and things like that. And our so software plays a role there as well. Um, so um, a lot of this was covered. Um, you know, I, and I think the probably the, the last bullet is probably the most, um, well, actually the first one. I did do a lot here in student agencies. They were a blast. 
you know, I did learn a lot, which uh, did serve me well later on. The, um, and uh, when I started in DECA, you know, I had three years of actual work experience, maybe three and a half, and, you know, some time at Harvard Business School and uh, really uh, a lot of audacity, uh, basically. Um, and uh, ignorance as well. Uh, it's, easy, it's easier to be audacious when you're ignorant of all the challenges. So what was the industry like in 1999? Um, that's the more, I mean, um, you know, it was crazy. The Internet bubble was going full steam, right? Um, the first part of the crash wasn't until April 2000, right? So, you know, this was, um, you know, times were very good. There were, you know, e-commerce sites everywhere. I mean, the, uh, I think I have it up there, the seven different pets.com, right? And there were lawsuits over who came up with the first one. I mean, that's, you know, the, um, there were dozens of companies started by my classmates out of Harvard, um, the, um, you know, everyone was, you know, the old rules don't apply is what everyone would say, right? So it's, you know, it's a new world and, you know, just, um, everyone breaks them. And I, and I remember on campus before I graduated, um, the, the CEO Morgan Stanley came to present and, you know, this whole startup fever was, it was so feverish that someone asked him like, well, have you considered leaving Morgan Stanley and starting your own business? And this guy was like, what planet are you on? Like this guy just, you know, was just... You know, he had, you know, was the epitome of success in, you know, the investment banking world. Um, but um, that just speaks to what 1999 was like. So, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> so, um, so while that was going on, um, this is the, uh, the, the pictogram, the spark uh, and the fuse. Um, it actually, the other founder of the company, um, it was a good friend of mine while I was here, was searching for a Princeton Reunions beer can on eBay. Uh, believe it or not. And so he types in Princeton, gets back several hundred, because back in the, in the, you know, prior to the 70s, they used to have, you know, the actual Princeton logos on the cans and whatnot. And he always wanted one. He says he's a collector of eclectic things. And so uh, one of, you know, several hundred hits come up and he's looking through them. And this um, Princeton Alumni Weekly is posted and it's getting a lot of bids. He goes home and finds his and it was less than a year old at the time. This is uh, uh, the spring of 99. And because it has David Duchovny on the cover, he posts it, and it sells for 50 bucks. Right? And, that's, you know, and for those of you who are students, you don't get the, I don't think you get the, uh, the paw yet, or maybe you do, but you get it for free, or you pay your dues, or however that works, and it just keeps showing up. So um, usually you read it, and you toss it. He happened to have it lying around. He then, a month later, sold an Abercrombie & Fitch catalog he had because the, the comp he was at a magazine that was profiled in. He sold that for $75. And when I heard that, I was like, I want to sell everything I own at those prices, right? Why would I keep anything? <laughs> so, and so I had this bottle of Sinatra One that I happened to have on the shelf, um, and I happened to look up, you know, what it, you know, the, the problem was, how do you know what's, you know, what's worth selling on eBay? So it's this chicken and egg game. And so, Type that in, and it was there was three bottles of it, each selling for a different price. One was thirty, one was thirty-five, one was forty. It was the same thing. I was like, "That's not an efficient market. Something's wrong there." And that's because every time a trade completes, that the, the closing price is, goes in the bit bucket, gets thrown out. But if you could know the last trade, you know, for every item, that would make for a much more efficient market. Right? Imagine trading on the New York Stock Exchange, not knowing the last price of a share. Right? So, but that's what eBay is, right? And so we analyzed it, and we realized that it's about 70% of the things traded there are actually, you know, um, cataloged in collector's guides. So the idea is maybe we build this catalog and collect those prices and try to build this, um, you know, a ticker for all the items that are on 
on eBay. And then we're thinking, you know, well, but in order to make that a business, people have to be able to find these things within three clicks, right? And so the thought experiment was, if you have 100 million records with a, with a price history, right, how is someone going to find something in that, right? If you do a search, you're going to get overwhelmed with lots of stuff. And if you build a taxonomy for someone to navigate that space, if you assume 20 options per level of the taxonomy, and you, know, you have to go about 15 levels deep before you actually represent all 100 million items, okay? And having done plenty of statistics here, even if the probability of making the right choice each step of the way is 95%, by the time you've done that 15 steps, you're never going to get to the right place. But literally, that was the thought process. It was like, this isn't going to work. I want to be able to type in Sinatra and get a Sinatra store. Right? instead of this long list of things. And this might seem like just how the Internet works today, but if you go back to 1999, it didn't. It didn't at all. And in fact, a lot of places it still doesn't, and they're, they're starting to do it more and more. And the good news is we have good intellectual property that's making its way through the patent uh, process. But um, this whole idea of creating a Sinatra store um, effectively boils down to n-dimensional space, which is why I have the Konigsberg bridge problem up there, which is a representation of you know, graph theory. Um, that led us down that path, and we realized that's the problem to solve, uh, was how do you enable people to access information in a way far more powerful than what was available. So um, there's, there's Pete, the other founder, his, uh, his uh, first attempt at trying to envision modeling information. There he is with clay and strings and whatnot. That's my dorm room at Harvard. Um, and uh, we were just exploring ideas. You know, that was literally, you know, we were, you know, um, neither of us were competent to really um, discuss, you know, uh, you know, graphs and that sort of space. But we evolved it enough to, at least where I could identify the key uh, talents we needed to, to perform the research to build this. And in fact, over the course of um, the summer of 99, you know, basically what I did is I reached out to folks that I had known, you know, and I also, um, you know, met some new people along the way, trying to figure out how would I go about building this. And so once I found a team where it was, if this is the team and I have funding, are you in? I went to investors and said, this is the team, do you want to back it? And because it was the summer of 99, it took three days to get the initial funding. Um, and we had a loan, basically, you know, call it a million dollar loan. Um, that wouldn't happen in any other time period. And um, you know, off we were. But I think what's interesting to note is that this team, right? There were, you know, a lot of it was from relationships here. A lot of us uh, had known each other, um, so this, that's why you know you see the orange and black. There is a whole Princeton. It started with a Princeton beer can, and it's actually continued all the way through. Um, you know, there was an MIT contingent, and there were a lot of relationships between people. So, for instance, Fritz, who was Princeton '88, worked on a research project down in Virginia with Adam, right? You know, or Dave uh, Gorley worked with me at Ink to Me, um, along with um, uh, another gentleman from MIT. You know, and I think that's an important lesson: is that's how these companies get started, right? Because you're trying to do something crazy, right? This, this thing doesn't exist. It's a crazy idea. Most people back in summer '99 either said this will never work, or they said, "Well, the internet already works that way." There's not, you know, what you're talking about doesn't make any sense. You know, it's 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 obvious. Um, you need to have people that know you who have some faith in you, right, from having worked with you. Um, and there we had, um, you know, it really was a research project. There's the three-bedroom research lab in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I sublet an apartment from an MIT professor who uh, was uh, pursuing a Fulbright 
her brand new condo. I don't think she expected. No. Well, we, we probably, you know, it, it all unfolded. Like we sort of were in there. We didn't think we were going to stay in there very long. And the one thing I did learn is, actually I felt bad about, is those Dell boxes, that blue ink, it bleeds into white paint. So, so note to any future entrepreneur. So um, there's, the, you know, there's the kitchen. <laughs> so, but um, and then we moved to this basement, and because it was the summer of '99, we had to take whatever space we could get, and we paid a lot of money to be in this basement space with the acid waste pipes overhead. Um, and uh, it would flood; we'd have inches of water show up. We'd have to take the computers and put them on the desks. Um, and we paid more money for that space than we're paying now for the eighth floor overlooking the Charles River in prime real estate. Um, but you know that's where we uh, where we got going. You can see, actually some of the early information modeling is there on the whiteboard, and um, you know it was it was a fun time. Again, it's still '99, so you know anything's possible. The sky's the limit, you know, because just you know uh, crazy things are happening in the news every day. Um, and the challenge at the time, right? And this was one of our metaphors we used back then. I don't know how many people know the Hober- Hober- Hoberman sphere, right? Sort of very scalable. Um, geometric construct, and, and we used to use that as, you know, our, um, uh, you know, uh, inspiration. We have to think as we're building our business how we're going to scale this big. And so every every step of the way, as much as possible, be thoughtful about it because you know it, we're not going to scale big accidentally. It's got to be you know um, because we've thought through the issues and put the right infrastructure in place. So then we go to 2000, the B 2 C bubble collapses. Um, and keep in mind, you know, a lot of our stuff was inspired by commerce. There's all these commerce companies, right? So it's, uh, you know, it seemed, seemed like an infinite market. Uh, but B2B was still going strong throughout that year. Um, in fact, there is what I call the last hurrah of the bubble was in August 2000. One of my classmates who started a company when uh, we were graduating, there was $100,000 in products um, sold across this, uh, this network. Um, they were trying to do, um, it was called supplier market. So the idea is, you know, you're, uh, you know, you make machine parts and you're providing them to people who need to buy machine parts. So $100,000 sold on a network, 90000 of which was bought by his father who ran a plant, right, and needed to buy stuff. Um, it was acquired for close to a billion dollars and was shut down three months after acquisition. <laughs> Just gives you an idea of how crazy the world was in 2000. I mean, it's, it's, it really was just out of control. My, another favorite one is Boo.com. How many people here remember Boo.com? Anyone? Only a few. Wow. Jeez. This sort of stuff just really shouldn't be forgotten because it's, uh, it's amazing stuff. They, they went through $90 million in less than a year. Um, there was a lot of designers that had this whole idea of this much more interactive web. Like, if you're going to shop for clothing, they were going to have this model that looked like you were going to put clothes on it and do all this stuff online. They would do lunch meetings in Europe by the Concorde. Right? That's how they managed to blow $90 million in less than a year, because they were that, you know, like, oh, let's get together for lunch. And, okay, I'll get on the Concorde. <laughs> That's what was going on then. Um, so what were we doing? Well, we were called OptiGrab. That was our stealth name. Uh, and I won't bore you with all of the, uh, the background behind that, but it comes from a movie. Um, and a member of the team happened to own the domain name, because we were developing all this intellectual property using our university alumni accounts, which who knows how secure that is, and we wanted to be able to you know, start you know, having some ability to, um, to keep our information in one place. You know, um, Reunions 2000 was a company holiday, you know, because basically I think we represented close to half 
the uh, employees at the time were Princeton alumni. The, uh, we started getting our first tangible research results, our first patent application. You can see a, a screenshot of it down below. We got our first customer focused. Our, our decision was we're going to focus on making that customer a success before we go out looking for customer number two. Okay, now this was very contrarian at the time, you know, because during the bubble, you just go out and just sign all sorts of, you just basically keep building a, a house of cards. That's really what a lot of these businesses were doing. And for whatever reason, our goal was we're going to make that customer a success and then get on to the next one. We're starting to do more hiring. Um, we launched that customer successfully. It was Fidelity Investments. Um, you know, they were very happy with it. In fact, what was interesting at the time, it took six weeks from meeting them the first time to selling them to start working with us. Uh, it actually took about five months before the paperwork was done. That's because they're lawyers and it's never fun. But um, the, um, they were basically about a week away from signing from an MIT startup that spun out of MIT the year before. And then they saw what we do and like, why would we go, why don't we skip a generation of technology? Right? So we really caught them at just the right time. Wasn't a good thing for that other company because that was going to be their third customer. Um, and they, you know, never continued down this path. They ended up on a very different path. Um, and at the end of the year, we're seeking customer number two, right? You know, just as that B2B market's starting to crash, you know, we're trying to figure out what we're, you know, we still see this B2B thing's interesting because this consumer commerce, you know, went up in flames. And, you know, all these companies are just going out of business left and right. So in 2001, immediately, as the year started, massive layoffs, anyone involved in technology, procurement, and implementation. The, um, a lot of companies going bankrupt. Um, IT spending declined. That was the first time. It was either 01 or 02. I didn't have all my data with me on the plane. So, but it was the first time in the history of the information technology industry that spending declined. And what makes that particularly painful is a, a, a majority of IT spending is pre-committed. It's a lot like the federal uh, uh, budget, where it's for entitlement programs. And you know, the um, IT spending, you have existing systems in place you got to maintain. You have support you got to pay for that stuff. Plus, you have stuff you committed to roll out several years before that you're still doing. So the discretionary stuff, right, for new ideas, that was all gone, right? They were already, they were cutting into the, you know, sort of stuff that they, you know, um, you know they were cutting in at the bone. We had the 9-11 attack on the U.S., the war in Afghanistan. You know, it was a, it was a rough year. We had one customer we signed in... Uh, you know, we started working with in July of 2000, basically. Um, so you can imagine us, you know, who, you know, who wants to be customer number two of a venture-backed software company with all this going on, right? You can imagine the, you know, people weren't queuing up. Um, not only were they not spending anything, but if someone did have money to spend, were they going to spend it on a company with one customer that was likely to be next in line of these, you know, bankruptcies? So we relaunched the company early in the year as Indeca. Right, um, um, you know. In fact, you can, it's a, a tribute to the geekiness. It's a Fibonacci sequence, the, lo the logo. But that also is uh, the scalability of what we do, the mathematics. You know, we try to be true to the, you know, uh, try to be true to that. Um, you know, we're building an executive team. You know, but really stopped hiring otherwise. You know, we sort of, you know, stabilized at a certain headcount. The, um, you know, all those customers that were interested in late 2000, anyone involved with that stuff was gone. Like literally. You know, I remember one investment bank, you know, we end December, like, hey, we want your team to come out here and architect a proposal next week. The next week, all those people are gone. So, you know, no one wants to buy software. 
And if we're not selling software, we're not getting any cash in from customers. So we need to uh, raise funding. And actually, there's a, an HBS case, uh, Harvard Business School case on this. Um, and two of the, the, the most memorable lines from that period of time, one was this idea of how do you catch a falling knife? And what that is, that, that was the markets. The markets declined. So you're trying to, so keep in mind, you're trying to establish a price with which to raise venture capital. Okay? Because there's, and, and keep in mind, there's no formula for doing this. Right? It's, um, it's really, um, you create a market by, you know, um, multiple people, what their interest is and how much they're willing to, to pay for a share of the company, basically. Um, it's, you know, it's, you don't, it's not a very liquid market like the stock market. But when the very liquid market like, you know, the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange are dropping hundreds of points a day, you don't know what the actual value of any entity is. And so if I were to look at um, the range of things considered over the first half of 01, I mean, it's probably three or four X the actual um, you know, value when we raise funding. So let's say if it started at 120, it ended up at you know, 40, which you know, actually in a normal context is fine. But in the context of the bubble, that seemed like a big precipitous decline. So that was you know, very difficult to, to actually set a price because no one wanted to be the first one to stick their neck out. Um, and that's the subject of the case. The other um, important line was by the, uh, so in August, and keep in mind, it's been basically 14, 15 months since we got the first customer to start working with us. We haven't had customer number two. That's a really bad sign for a technology company, right? And if you're not able to separate the fact that no one was buying software from the fact that, you know, just, an, you know, it's not, it's not a reflection of our technology, it's a reflection of the macro environment, the, um, um, it's, you know, you, you just say, look, I'm not interested in talking to you. Clearly, there's nothing there. Um, and most venture capitalists don't really get in at the detailed level of the technology to understand it. They look for leading indicators like, you know, customers buying it or other you know, credible third parties, you know, voting with their, you know, careers to be part of it. The, um, and so I managed to get interest from an outside party. Um, in August, and our, in, our, our existing investors also were interested in, in what's called leading a round of investment. So we had our board meeting on the, the day after Labor Day, which I think was the fourth, it was a Tuesday, and um, we had to make a decision. We could go with the investors round, which was going to close that Friday, which was the eighth, I think, or the seventh, so, yeah, seventh, and, um, or we could wait a week and close on the 14th with these outside investors who were willing to pay more and there were better terms and stuff like that. And so we had about six weeks, six, eight weeks of cash, which is not uncommon when you have, you know, your existing investors, you know, we were, we were planning for that. We're like, what difference does a week make, right, between the two, uh, you know, rounds, uh, two, two uh, syndicates? Well, 9-11 happened to take place in that intervening period. Um, so you can imagine a little stressful, um, you know, we don't have a lot of cash, the, um, Everything's upside down. Um, the, um, you know, we were actually try, you know, thinking about contingency plans. You know, what do we do? Uh, you know, a lot of uh, deals that were in progress in the market um, invoked a, for, a clause called force majeure, which is, you know, act of God. All our discussions are just off because everything's so uncertain. But our reason for being willing to wait a week for this other group was we thought they were really good individuals, that their... Um, um, their morals and ethics were very compatible with ours. Um, and, you know, ultimately that's, you know, that, that proved to be true when 
they drove, they were stuck in Minnesota. Remember all the planes were, were not flying. And the guy who was leading the investment happened to be in Minnesota. And he got a rental car and drove back to Cambridge so that he could get the deal done. And he said, you know, we thought about pulling out, but he said all the reasons why we wanted to do the deal are still true, right? The team, the technology, the importance of what we're doing. And so they went ahead and did it. And, uh, you know, um, can't speak enough about the importance of, you know, when you're interacting with, you know, parties like that, that it's very above board and you build a strong relationship because that's what allows those things to ultimately get done. Right? If we had, if we had uh, been too aggressive and over-negotiated or been difficult, they just would have dropped it and moved on. We also had an anthrax scare in October. Um, we had someone threatening us. We were on national TV um, where it was, have our website. And DECA, a Cambridge technology company, then it would go to, uh, then it went to the courtroom where there was the person who, uh, who was sending in messages to our website that we sent to uh, the, uh, um, uh, the attorney general's office, and they were trying to make a statement about um, being tough on anthrax hoaxes, and we were caught up in the middle of it on national TV, which, you know, everyone says all PR is good PR, but I'm not so sure. Um, so we finally got customer number two in October 2001, 15 months after the first one, um, and five customers by the end of the year. So there was, you know, there were people interested throughout the year, and in fact, that's why we also why we were able to get that investor group interested. It turned out. And it's always better to be lucky than smart because the investor, um, his next door neighbor, was um, very excited about what we could do at their financial services firm. Um, furthermore, another one of those first five customers, they knew the CEO of that company personally. We hadn't offered either of those two groups as references for what we were doing. So they were able to do their independent references and find incredibly enthusiastic people. And so they, you know, they were like, something must be happening here. Um, but you know that was just a stroke of luck, because without that, you know, people are, su are suspicious of references in the first place because you go and pick, you, know, you can put your best foot forward. And so they always look for ones that you know are independent. And when they find ones that are that glowing that we didn't choose to put forward, um, that says a lot to them. So we go into O2. This tech recession continues. IT spending declines further. Um, you know, the remaining bubble startups are all vying for the same customers and markets. Whatever budget's there, everyone's fighting for it. And so at Indeca, we put our initial sales force of eight in place, one of them in the UK. We had 25 customers by the end of the year. At the end of the year, we're very optimistic that the recovery's in sight because, you know, we just had such a great year. Uh, we start hiring again. Um, the nature of our technology um, was actually covered in the journal of the ACM because of a researcher at Berkeley who was researching this space and referenced us as a commercial version of our research. Not the place you want to be when you're doing research that there's, you know, because we, we you know, what, that there's someone else actually doing it and further ahead. But um, I think that speaks to the, you know, the roots of the company where we really were a research project. And then Forrester Research, uh, one of the analyst firms, um, put us as one of these emerging leaders at the time in a market they call enterprise search, which is search within corporations. Um, but, you know, we have a tiny dot because we were small, but the particular analyst had a lot of faith in what we're doing. In fact, that person joined the company two, two years later. Um, um, yes, for enterprise search. And in fact, that would be true today because what we do is far more um, sophisticated than the enterprise. Um, you know, um, Google has a, an appliance that is very much um, a commodity solution. Think of it as TextPad on your desktop instead of Microsoft Word kind of thing. 
So in 2003, all that optimism quickly leads to uncertainty from the lead up to war in Iraq. So just when we thought everything was getting great, all of a sudden, there's this uncertainty again. You know, and this, you know, after that starts, this, this is the spending going to come back? Or was the uptick the year before an illusion? And you have no idea when you're you know, in the middle of it. There's no way of knowing. Um, are the capital markets back? Because they also, this uncertainty caused a lot of issues there. Um, and then, but then on the other side, it was all this military spending. We're like, wow, that, that could mean there's a big customer there. Turns out most of that goes to bullets and consumables, not to you know, investments in infrastructure. But learned that afterwards. But in 2003, so we had this rocky start. You know, because of the freezing of, you know, we, um, because, um, due to the uncertainty, the um, people weren't buying. You know, so all the stuff that people were, you know, claiming they were going to buy, they just literally, they didn't. I mean, they were, you know, everyone was watching TV. <laughs> they weren't getting work done. And, um, you know, so we froze hiring. We conserved resources to mitigate risk. We started up again at the end of the year. Um, you know, we ended the year with 60 customers. We started getting involved with the intelligence community. You know, certainly all the, you know, um, you know, war on terror certainly um, raised the uh, uh, the visibility of the need to process um, intelligence information, large amounts of documents to provide information in context so we can discover things. And so, Incutel is a um, think of it as a it's sort of an investment arm of the CIA, but not quite. They sort of do development projects with emerging technologies. So we're starting to get some attention. Um, the other big topic on our mind was how do you mitigate the macro risk? So with all this uncertainty, right? So we had a, a big problem in Q1, right, where the customers didn't buy. And so you know we only have so many so much resource in the bank. So what do you do? Do you get more resource? Do you raise more money? Right. One of our options was um, borrowing against our customer contracts, right? Which, when you're normally growing a business, it's a great idea because you know you you know those customers are going to pay and. Um, you know, you just you have a general um, degree of certainty about where your business is headed. But when there's so much volatility that, it's, you know, it's conceivable you could have three quarters where customers don't buy. You know, because, I mean, a part of that's a byproduct of what we had been through. All 2001, no one bought anything, right? So what do you do, right? What's the right decision? And um, the, uh, you know, we ended up um, extending our runway with some very thoughtful borrowing. Um, but then as soon as we were in a position to raise more capital to build a cushion, we did, right? Because the view was, you know, when you raise capital, you have to give up a share of the company to investors, which, you know, if you're the entrepreneur or you're an employee, you don't want to do that because you want more of it for the employees. And um, But we, we figured we're better off selling another 10% of the company and assuring that we get through all this difficult time than, you know, than risking um, you know, having a few months, a few quarters of downturn. The other thing I have up here is what's called the Gartner Magic Quadrant. So Gartner is this research firm that I mentioned before, and for better or for worse, they try to uh, distill dozens of companies into the simple two-by-two -two matrix of ability to execute, think of that as ability to succeed, and completeness of vision. And as you can see, there are a lot of companies up there, um, and we're just down there in the weeds, you know, with all these other companies. You know, not very distinguished and, uh, but despite Forrester viewing us as a leader, this particular analyst wasn't convinced. He had a different vision for where information access was headed. So in 2004, the optimism comes back, right? Uh, Google's success with advertising is becoming apparent. That makes things even more buoyant. Um, 
VCs see our success, they start funding competitors, right? Um, you know, and again, as our intellectual, intellectual property works its way through the process, that'll take care of that, um, I think, quite well. The, um, but that's, you know, that's what happens, right? You know, so think about it. We went from, we couldn't get anyone to fund us in 01, right? To now, people are seeing us being successful. So everyone's like, oh, that's something where there's some success in the market. Let's throw in more investment dollars and make it more difficult for them, right? So, um, so we did our last round of funding in the very beginning of 04. That's what I mentioned before. Um, which was a uh, big success. We crossed the 100 customer mark. And I think a testament to how well we were executing is Home Depot, Walmart, and Kmart all went live in November 2004 on our software. Those are the three largest retailers in America. And so our dot moved a little bit. Um, you can see we made it up there a little bit, and you know, we were really excited about that. You know, This is the stuff that you get really excited about when you're building a business, because when you cross that magic line there, all of a sudden, you know, Fortune 500 healthcare company that's doing a project says, oh, we just want to look at the three leaders and ask them to come in and present. So we still weren't there. We weren't getting any of that stuff. So then 05, the Google IPO, the M&A market heats up tremendously. I was actually uh, speaking with a venture capitalist um, last week who um, had been in the business a long time. He said he believed every private company was being pursued by some larger company. That, that was his impression. It was just everywhere. Um, and we had lots of people call in. Uh, in fact, in 2004, it was uh, all the other private companies were trying to merge with each other, right? They were, uh, they were you know, those that it wasn't working out so great were trying to, you know, be part of another, you know, um, larger entity that, you know, seemed to have a greater chance of success. By 05, it was the public markets looking at all the private companies. Um, several small, unsuccessful competitors were acquired. Um, then analysts started talking about a convergence of markets and a disappearance of enterprise search, which is, you know, if I go back up here, that's the enterprise search market, okay? And this analyst is saying that market's going away. Um, the good news is we were, we're part of the impetus for these markets converging, okay? I used both those terms before, business intelligence and search. We're, you know, we're leading the charge of trying to bring those two markets together. And the good news is the business intelligence market is about 15 to 20 times the size of the enterprise search market. So there's a lot more opportunity as we succeed with that. Um, so in 05 is when we got Esther's Best of Show, 100 new customers, another 20 or 30 additional applications to our existing customers. We have uh, closed the year with customers in 11 countries, the first customers in Asia. <clears throat> a lot of significant IP was developed from our you know, R&D, again, you know, uh, continuing that theme of we were an organization started as a research project. And then in October 2005, the Gartner Magic Quadrant, instead of enterprise search, is the information access market. We're above the line, so we're off to the races, right? That's the, you can see the X's, those are some of the ones that were acquired. And you see we're no longer in the noise, you know, all those other little companies, right? So we're really excited about that. So it was a big moment for us. And I thought I'd just give a few other examples that show our progress. This is IBM, where we started with an application in 2003. Um, they put it for their notebook finder. So, and when sales of notebooks on their online site went up 50%, it caught people's attention throughout the, the, you know, the CIO's office at IBM. So then they just started deploying us for support at IBM.com. And, and keep in mind, they had their own search technology. They actually had a license for another search technology they were using there, but they were complementing it with us. Then they deployed us for this application called the BCS Marketplace, which I'll talk about in a moment, which led to several others. And 
today we're in the top 10% of their vendor rankings, um, you know, in terms of the quality of the, the product and the, the service they're getting from us and the volume of business. So we're pretty happy with that. And this is one of those applications which I think speaks to um, the value of the technology. We're in the Wall Street Journal for this, where IBM doesn't mention us in, the, in this uh, particular Wall Street Journal article. In fact, they cite they won't sell our software to their competitors. Um, the, um, and then in another article, they refer to saving $500 million because of this application. Basically, it helps them staff consultants. So the idea is you have a project, right, and you need to get people that can you know, build that project successfully. And IBM is so big that they would staff projects with outside contractors because they didn't know they had people available that could really solve, that work on these projects. And so by actually solving that problem, right, they save $500 million of not hiring outside people they were already employed. I mean, when, IBM, when you're as big as IBM, you can have things like that that happen. Um, but, you know, it's also nice because it's reassuring. IBM has a lot of different technologies. And, you know, if they would have deployed traditional search or traditional business intelligence, this application would have been the tree falling in the forest with no one there to hear it because no one would have used it. And if no one uses it, they're never going to get these, this economic benefit. You know, we're in Wall Street Journal again, helping the war on terror, the DIA, with some of their, um, you know, buying our software. That's about the most we'll ever get out of them uh, publicly. Um, you know, another helping a large European uh, uh, invest, uh, retail bank using our software, standardizing on it. You know, they, they own 13 different search technologies, and they're looking to standardize on this. You know, and, um, you know, if you look over the years, this global 1,000 customers, you know, growing, right? That's another... Um, um, you know, uh, good leading indicator. And so back with where I started, you know, today, this is fastest growing um, information access software company. Um, and, um, you know, it's been a lot of fun. Each year, though, as you can see, the context is very different. You know, the, um, you know, from the craziness of 2000, you know, where you had people flying the Concorde for lunch meetings, um, to you know, 2001, where no one was buying any software, to 2003, where suddenly there's a war, and again, people have stopped buying, right? And you just don't know what to do, right? You have to make use your you know your your instinct and make a decision and march forward and be and be agile, but um, you know it's uh, it's you know, it's a lot of times you'll hear people characterize situations where they knew all along what they should do, and I would submit to you a lot of it's historical revisionism. Right, you know, it's easier to look backwards. I could, I could have cast a story here tonight, just talked about how we knew everything, right, and had everything figured out at the beginning. But you know, I, I share with you very openly. We started thinking about the world of e-commerce, but today, you know, we're solving supply chain problems. You know, we're solving you know problems in the intelligence community. We're solving, we're building dashboards for IBM to better manage their business. I wouldn't have guessed any of that stuff when we were creating the company. Um, but the good news is, because the idea that we had. We knew enough to know you couldn't do it using other approaches. Turned out, you know, um, we developed technology to support that, but that same idea turned out to be very horizontal, right? And so we've been able to keep expanding the markets with which we can have um, an impact. So lessons learned. I wanted to just go through a few of these. You know, if I were to, you know, I try to come up with a few that are really um, um, should hold true in all circumstances. You know, the people placed in the right role make all the difference. Just as when you have project teams, people you might work on problem sets to, you know, with, you know, the people make the difference. And the same is when you're building a business. 
you know, if you think about your lab team, there's some lab partners that, you know, it doesn't quite click, and there are others you can be very successful. The same is true when you're building a business. And when someone's not in, you know, not the right fit or not in the right place, take action. Don't wait, because it's only going to get worse. Right? It's the hardest thing. It's a lesson you'll hear from, you know, anyone who speaks like this, you'll hear them say, you know, what's the one thing they would do differently? And it's probably they would have taken actions on certain personnel stuff sooner. This idea of the relentless pursuit of credibility. The reason why we could get through some very difficult times is we very methodically built credibility. So I didn't walk through this in extensive detail, but when you look at the people we brought on the team, we look, you know, I mean, all other things being equal, we try to get someone that was going to, you know, it was actually making it marketable. People that had technology experience in very well-respected organizations. You saw the fact that we had that whole Princeton contingent, the MIT contingent. That certainly was a source of credibility. Um, we brought on investors that were very credible, um, the Rockefeller family and then Bessemer, which is, you know, from, uh, um, I think, uh, Henry Phipps, which is the Bessemer Steel, or Andrew Carnegie's business partner, right? So that sort of thing. And... Um, but all along the way, you know, the customers, making that customer success, going for the blue chip customers instead of, you know, someone that's going to go out of business. The, um, you're always selling, right? That's the other thing is when you're building a business, um, you know, at any point in time, you're trying to project that you're more than you are, right? Because that's the only way you're going to get there, right? And you get people to believe you and suddenly you make it happen, right? It's, it's, think about the starting point, right? There's nothing, right? It's just a PowerPoint slide. And, um, but you have to, you know, get people excited about what you're doing, and, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The, um, I think, you know, when I think of how you prepare, you know, to do this sort of thing, I mean, you know, there's lots of things you can learn, you know, um, you know here at university. Uh, I learned a lot doing student agencies, involved a lot in my eating club, things like that. Um, I think the relationships that you build are critical, and you should always think about that. You know, I mean, some of the early members of the team were folks that, you know, go back to Wilson College with me, right? And, um, and so, um, you know, when, you, when you're trying to build a team, when you're trying to solve particular problems, the more people you know that you're like, hey, that person could really solve this problem and they believe in me, the more successful you're going to be. Um, trying to do things the right way pays off in the end. I used that example in 2000 when we focused on the one customer. Had we gone and chased a bunch of customers and built a house of cards, we wouldn't have made it. Now, if it was 1997, we probably could have had two years of building a house of cards. I mean, the, the rules were different. You could build a house of cards and get away with it. Um, I think um, advocating to experience. You know, this was this was a tough. This was a, was a big lesson for me because you know I had three years, three and a half years experience. I brought on an experience management team, and at times there were things that did not make sense to me. And in the long run, I'd say nine times out of ten, I was vindicated. And I, you know, if I had to do something different, I would have had the courage, you know, or um, confidence to really just say, "Look, I don't care if that's what your experience tells you, right? That's something that works in a large organization, or that's not going to be what makes us a great company." Right? The um, and then um, the last bullet, which I mentioned before, is when you hear folks do talks like this. You know, always be on the eye, on the lookout for historical revisionism, right? I think you'll learn more by trying to always, I mean, if, if something sounds like there was, you know, um, they had everything figured out up front and it all just worked perfectly, right? Um, something's wrong with that because it doesn't really happen that way, right? Um, you could take Google, right? One of the greatest successes, you know, in recent 
uh, years. And they were struggling in 2001 and 2002, right? They hit on the ad model and that, you know, that happened to work, but that wasn't their model. They took that from goto.com. It was someone else's. They had a lawsuit over intellectual property. Okay. Um, and, but if, you know, if you were to think about the story being written right now, it just looks like they had everything figured out in 1998 and just built this great business. That isn't, that isn't the actual story. Um, so when you have speakers come in, you always keep that in mind. I'm happy to open it up for any questions. Yes? Uh, what are the arguments for and against going public? Um, well, the arguments for is that when you have venture capitalists, they have funds <laughs> that have a lifespan of around six or seven years. So they have to have an exit to return their dollars to their shareholders. Right? Now, turns out I happen to have um, investors that have, or most of my investors have evergreen funds because they're from families that, that have a hundred year horizon instead of a seven year horizon of, you know, a bunch of investors. Um, but you kind of have to at some point, or you have to have some means for someone else to buy their equity interest. And it's actually really difficult to do that. So you just go public. Um, when you go public, you have an acquisition currency, right? So it's much easier for me to acquire other companies. Um, also the transparency around our financials makes uh, large buyers more comfortable buying our software. Now, the arguments against, you know, I think the last number I heard is for a company under $100 million in revenue, there's around a $3 million annual cost to being public, measured in terms of compliance, uh, insurance for your directors and, you know, others, um, you know, and other costs. That's significant. I'd rather be spending that $3 million investing in the business, right? Um, and the other one is when you're private, you don't have to disclose as much information, information that just helps your competitors. How do you see your uh, IP patent portfolio? Is it a defensive weapon and if you get more successful that you can trade patents with people who want to sue you, or is it an attack weapon that you can use to destroy your competitors? I think it's all the above, right? And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that the way IP works, it has less to do with, I think, the actual intellectual property than to other contextual factors. So it's used as a weapon to put someone out of business or to, you know, one of these recently funded competitors that doesn't have a lot of funding, they're not going to go through a protracted legal, you know, a dispute with us. So we call those the ankle biters, right? We can get, we can, we can deal with them with the intellectual property. Um, someone like IBM, it's much harder to do that, right? That becomes so that we're not threatened by some of their IP. Um, there are some places where customers choose to go on their own. They're inspired by what we do and they try to build it. Um, I think that will allow us to license something to them, you know, and get, you know, remuneration for our invention. Uh, I have two questions. One of them is, uh, what is uh, your attitude in terms of the IP? Like, in which, uh, in which stage of the uh, initial uh, building of the company, you should start focusing more on patenting your technologies? And my second question is, if you have any tips or suggestions about uh, pre uh, getting prepared better about the relationships, business relationships. Okay. So the first one, um, well, you can't really show what you're doing without losing the IP, right? So early on, you have to be thinking about it. Um, and I think we had a good focus early on. I mean, I meant like initially the money is scarce and, you know, like... Uh, in, initially in terms of funding and the stuff because, you know, like the patents uh, cost. They're costly. Absolutely. Um, fortunately for us, we had sufficient funding where we weren't making a very, uh, we weren't making a big decision early on. 
Now, in 0102, the bigger decision was around the people who could be working on patents or solving customer problems. And I'd say there was some interesting intellectual property that because we were so focused on customer acquisition that we um, were unable to capture. Um, you know, and in retrospect, I would have, you know, would have liked to have carved off more for investing in that. The, um, as far as advice on, you know, building relationships, I mean, it's, it's, it's making a good impression, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, having people confident in you as an individual, you know, that they're willing to, you know, to work with in the future, right? Um, it's, you know, I mean, uh, in many cases, you know, I mean, it's going to be folks you sit with at dinner, you know, or, you know, someday you may want to work with them, you know, and so just build those relationships with that in mind. Um, what challenges do you see in the emerging markets, kind of talk about the IP as well, I mean, with China and India being able to go out and how are you supposed to be able to back up your IP across those kinds of different international markets? What challenges are you, are you facing any challenges about other companies? Um, well, there's no doubt that there's always reluctance to enter the Chinese market, you know, because of that, but that's, you can overcome that. Um, I would think of it this way, you know, if, you know, even if someone were to copy what you're doing in China and they're not enforcing it, that doesn't mean they can market it back here in the United States, right? So, you know, the, the, the largest, most developed markets have good intellectual property protection. Um, so I don't, I don't see, you know, I mean, that really getting in the way um, of, of building a business, to be honest. Going back to your early customers, customer one and customer two, how did you figure out the revenue model you were going to use to extract money from in the absence of prior well, I'd say figure out is um, is a generous statement, right? We uh, we sort of muddled our way through it, right? The um, I mean, you come up, you you propose something that you think is consistent with, you know, how they measure their business, right? And you and you know, you try to have something where if their business is more successful, you capture some of it, you know, if you can, or if they use more. So success could mean they use more of, of our stuff, right? And you know, it really comes down to a negotiation. If you were to look today. You know, there are probably 15 different models that have been used over time. Now, as we grow, we're in a better position to sort of assert what our model is going to be. Early on, you do whatever you need to do to make it work for the customer. So, you know, whether you're licensing by the number of processors, the number of uh, records in their database, the number of CPUs, you know, the increase in traffic. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's software, Right, so our cost of goods sold doesn't change, you know, other than the cost of contracting, perhaps, and the cost of measurement. This I cannot imagine a better lecture for this particular series. Actually, it's hard for me to imagine a better lecture. Um, this was like just one of the most insightful, honest, and inspiring talks about doing this kind of thing that I've heard in a long time, and. I want to correct one of the answers you gave. Okay. Because I think that you actually are such a model for a slightly different answer. You got asked about how you build those relationships. You put up a whole bunch of things on that slide about answers. And yes, making a good first impression was a really big part of it. But you put a whole bunch of things on that that really have to do with what makes people value relationships with someone. And it had to do with not compromising with really caring about the quality of what you did, with believing in your own judgment, not just bowing mm -hmm. down to whatever the popular views were. And um, 
I think probably everybody in this room would want to have a relationship with you, Steve. So thank you for being, not just for coming as a Christian alum and giving this talk, but for being such a great model of what we really want our students to become. Thank you.